This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Are we headed for another surge in the U.S.? And is this one really avoidable? CDC director says so. Cases are on the rise in over half of states. We'll look into what's going on and if we can uh, head it off. Hey, do you want an aspirin? Yeah, sure. Well, maybe you should take one, even if you feel okay. We will explain how it could keep you out of the hospital with COVID. If you were hoping to get the AstraZeneca vaccine, you might have to wait uh, a long time. More and more people starting to travel again as vaccine shots get into arms. But we start with the cases on the rise here in the U.S. Dr. Syra Madad, Senior Director of Special Pathogens for New York City's hospital system. She was featured in the Netflix documentary Pandemic, How to Prevent an Outbreak. So, Doctor, uh, your personal worry level now that we're seeing these rates uh, climb in so many states. Oh, I think that we're looking at the numbers, looking at the tra- trajectory, and then also looking at other countries around us and, you know, having vaccination programs ongoing in those countries, similar to the United States, I am very concerned. I'm very concerned that, you know, we are prematurely lifting restrictions in many states like mask mandates, um, removing caps and indoor gatherings at a, at a time where we are at the cusp of a potential fourth surge. We haven't even recovered from the third wave that we're in, and now we're looking at a fourth wave, you know, potentially coming. But I do think that given the widespread, uh, you know, vaccination campaigns that the U.S. is, is you know, is happening here, um, we will be able to blunt significant hospital strain and death. But at the same time, the risk remains. We need to ensure that we are decreasing the number of new infections that are happening on a daily basis. So, Uh, Day after day on our show, uh, we hear medical experts such as yourself say exactly what what you have said. And day after day, we hear from politicians, whether it's New York City's mayor or New York State's governor or California's uh, (laughs) governor and Los Angeles's mayor. They are constantly opening things up. Where is the disconnect? The disconnect is in multiple different places. First, the disconnect is you know, what we're seeing is while vaccination rates are increasing on a daily basis, you're seeing that governors are uh, looking at not just the, you know, what the vaccination rates and the cases, they're just making these decisions, you know, essentially um, based on political pressure. Uh, We need to, again, make sure that we're following the science and public health. We need to look at the data in totality and we're not making knee-jerk reactions and decisions that would ultimately obviously affect millions of people in each of these states. Um, as you're looking at the trends, and you know, the national data oftentimes masks the local level, right? So if you're looking at the local level, you're seeing over 20 states that over the past, you know, uh, you know, seven-day average, you're seeing increased number of cases. You're seeing test positivity also increase. You're also seeing hospitalization increase um, in some of these states. And so these are certainly um, you know, worrying trends, and we need to just make sure that we are following the science and we're tying any lifting of restrictions not only to vaccination rates, but also community transmission rates, percent, uh, percent positivity, hospitalizations, and the like. If we're going to point to something being the cause, I mean, we mentioned restrictions being lifted. There's probably fewer people wearing masks because, you know, you get past the winter and now we're into the spring and it feels like things are better. So maybe I'm less on guard, but also what the UK variant, what's what's playing a role here? 
Well, you know, certainly we are seeing um, you know, the variants of concern. So the B117 variant certainly is one of the most widespread variants identified to date in the United States. Uh, and basically, we're seeing between 43 and 90% more infections than the version of the virus that uh, we were seeing, um, you know, the past year. Um, and we know that these variants are going to continue to increase in the proportion of cases that we have here in the United States. That's going to happen. But we can certainly blunt new chains of transmission from occurring by making sure that not only are we focusing on vaccination and increasing vaccination rates, we need to hold pandemic strategies like mask wearing and making sure that we're continuing to be vigilant about risk and doing multiple risk reduction techniques like meeting folks outside. I think it's we're at a point, you know, a year you know, out of this pandemic, telling folks to obviously um, not gather, not travel. Those are the types of recommendations that people are not wanting to listen to. Again, you know, where everyone's pandemic weary. So is anybody, to your knowledge, working on a vaccine to make people and politicians smarter? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good <laughs> question. You know, I have um, I have responded to different infectious disease outbreaks. And I can tell you that, poly, you know, pandemics uh, and epidemics are 50% biological as they are 50% political. You just can't take the politics out of it. And that's just that's just the, the world that we live in. But we just need to make sure that knowing that politics plays a significant role, we need to have experts that understand the science and that that elected officials are following, certainly give significant credit to the Biden administration by following through on their guiding principles. It's just a lot of these governors certainly are making decisions based on their own uh, kind of information that they're going off of and whatever political pressure that they may be under. Dr. Saiwar Madad, Senior Director, Special Pathogens Program, New York City Hospital System. Doctors have been recommending people take low-dose aspirin every day for a while now. They say it can help decrease the risk of heart and stroke problems. But new study now finds it can prevent a severe case of COVID. Maybe with us to explain is the lead author of the study, Dr. Jonathan Chow, anesthesiologist, critical care physician, George Washington University School of Medicine. So, doctor, what'd you find? Um, so in our study, we found that patients who are on aspirin in the seven days before they were hospitalized or taking aspirin in the first 24 hours of hospitalization, they had a protective effect when they had COVID-19. And specifically, there was a, over a 40% reduction in the risk of needing the ICU. There was a 44% uh, reduction in the risk of needing a ventilator and a 47% reduction in the risk of dying in the hospital. Now, does this hold true if somebody has not been taking aspirin, gets ill with COVID, is hospitalized, and then is used, it, it's used as a treatment as opposed to a, a, a prophylactic, I guess. Yeah, so uh, this study looked at both patients who are already taking aspirin at home, but it also looked at patients who were taking aspirin in the first 24 hours of hospitalization. So whether the uh, ER uh, physician uh, prescribed the aspirin to them uh, when they arrived in the emergency room or whether uh, the uh, doctor uh, on the floor prescribed the aspirin. If it was prescribed within the first 24 hours, uh, they uh, had uh, enjoyed the same uh, benefits as those who were already taking aspirin. And the theories as to what's going on? Yeah. So um, in the uh, early part of the pandemic in spring of 2020, um, our group, uh, along with uh, George Washington University, University of Maryland, Wake Forest, and uh, Northeast Georgia Health System, we developed this uh, crush COVID uh, registry database of patients. And the reason why we did that is because we saw that patients who had COVID started developing excess clot formation 
and activation of platelets throughout the body. And, and they were dying from these complications. And aspirin is a antiplatelet uh, blood thinner that's used in heart disease to prevent clots from forming. And that's why we thought aspirin would work in COVID-19. Now, I know that there are some people who are going to be concerned about the possibility of bleeding, but did not your study also show that there didn't seem to be a difference in terms of bleeding from those who took the aspirin as opposed to those who did not? You're absolutely right. Um, Our study, we looked at the complication rate of major bleeding events, and we didn't find a significant difference in our uh, aspirin group and the non-aspirin group. But that being said, aspirin has been studied extensively before in heart disease. Um, And in patients who take aspirin for the prevention of heart disease, there's actually a significantly increased risk of internal bleeding by about 1.3 times. So before patients rush to the pharmacy to buy a bottle of aspirin uh, to take when they get infected with COVID, they really need to consult with their primary care physician first uh, so that they can properly weigh the risks and benefits. All right. So that answers the uh, do I rush out to the store question. Uh, What's next for you when it comes to this? Well, um, so our study was a retrospective study, meaning that it looked back in time. It was not a gold standard randomized control trial that um, is the gold standard of studies. Um, And right now, there is a randomized control trial going on in the United Kingdom, uh, and that's the recovery trial. And after our results were first published uh, as a preprint in the fall, they added aspirin to their randomization arm. And um, as of last week, I've heard that they finished enrolling their last aspirin patient Um, So hopefully in the next couple of weeks, we will be able to have definitive results to see if to see if aspirin uh, causes a a definitive decrease in death in the ICU. Dr. Jonathan Chow, anesthesiologist, critical care physician, George Washington University School of Medicine. The AstraZeneca vaccine has been found to be effective at stopping the virus, but the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases has now all but accused AstraZeneca of lying about the results of its vaccine clinical trials. Yeah, independent panel of medical experts that was helping to oversee the trial in the U.S. said the company essentially cherry-picked data that was the most favorable for the study, as opposed to the most recent and most complete. That's a quote. Dr. Cody Meisner, pediatric infectious disease specialist at Tufts University, University, member of the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Panel. So, uh, Doctor, do you agree that statement from the NIH uh, um, extraordinary? I agree. It's uh, it's it's very unusual for this sort of a statement to be issued uh, by the Data Safety and Monitoring Board, which is assigned the responsibility of looking at the data before it's submitted to the FDA and determining its accuracy and its interpretation. And uh, I, it's a, I have a hard time thinking of another situation that is similar to this one. So I was listening to everybody this morning when, when people were still trying to wrap their heads around what exactly it meant, because there's a lot of you know science and research talk, and that's why we have you here. But take me through in layman's term what you think this 
means. And, and the way someone was doing it this morning was, okay, your trial runs a certain amount of time. They took a chunk of time. They put out the data. They said, here's our effectiveness rate. But they ignored at least a week or 10 days. And over that period, more people ended up getting COVID. So if you put those numbers back in, then your efficacy comes down from where you said it was. Is that kind of in the sphere that we're in? I think, first of all, it's very hard for me to to address the actual data because I have not seen it. It has not yet been submitted to the advisory committee. So, uh, you know, pretty much, if not more than I do, but uh, the the implications are quite disturbing because for several reasons. First of all, remember, this is a worldwide pandemic. It isn't a pandemic here in the United States only. And if this pandemic continues in Africa or Europe or Asia or South America, then it's going to continue here in the United States because there will be mu- new mutations that will evolve that are resistant to the vaccine. So we have to get this uh, pandemic under control just as quickly as we can. And we need every possible vaccine that's available. I think everybody wants every vaccine manufacturer to succeed. We want as much vaccine as we can possibly produce. And, you know, we have done a remarkable, I say we, the the, uh, people who have been in charge of this vaccine have done a remarkable job. Operation Warp Speed was very successful at developing uh, four or five different vaccines that had never been used before. So it's an extraordinary scientific accomplishment. The difficulty has come after the vaccines were developed in terms of manufacturing sufficient doses, distributing those vaccines, and administering them to people who need to be vaccinated. That's where the problem is. Well, and 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 he, but here's the real, I think, the real problem going forward. As you know, this is not the first, and I'm going to just say it, black mark, really, for AstraZeneca. They've had a number of issues, which was one of the reasons, right, why the FDA insisted on a separate trial here, even though it had their vaccine has already been approved in the U.K. and indeed throughout uh, Europe. Uh, Is this not going to further erode confidence in this vaccine? And for those who might be reluctant to take a vaccine, wow, they may say, well, why should we take or trust this one? Yes. No, those are precisely the thoughts that uh, we all have. Uh, AstraZeneca can't seem to get out of its own way. It keeps tripping on itself, and it's not clear why. But that's why I think, as you said, the FDA insisted on a clinical trial done here in the United States. And so these issues that are now arising as to the accuracy of the data uh, stem from that trial that was done here under very careful scrutiny. So... But I I would like to add one point. That is, I hope that people won't misinterpret this this result because it wasn't a question about AstraZeneca's vaccine safety. It's a question about 
how effective it is and how protective it is. So I don't want people to think that these vaccines have not been carefully studied. I think you could take the position that this example shows how well and how thoroughly the FDA is doing its job. That is evaluating these vaccines. The Moderna, the Pfizer uh, vaccine, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine are remarkably safe. We've administered hundreds of millions of doses in the United States. There's no question about safety. It's so important that people receive one of the approved vaccine. Okay, this but, but let me, because we're running out of time, so let me just quickly ask you, though, if suppose that this AstraZeneca shot is, well, let's say you're in Europe, so you could get the AstraZeneca. You have four shots in front of you, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson, Johnson, AstraZeneca. Would you think more than twice about the AstraZeneca one right now? I think uh, let me answer it this way. I, I think that uh, Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson's vaccines are equivalent. They are equally effective at preventing death, uh, preventing hospitalization. And they are, they are equally safe and equally effective. I cannot comment at this time on AstraZeneca because I simply have not seen the data. Dr. Cody Meisner, pediatric infectious disease specialist, Tufts University, member of the FDA's vaccine advisory panel. Coming up after this short break, travel making a comeback. Travel is starting to pick up across the U.S. People are getting vaccinated and are tired of staying home. Where are they going? Are travel patterns changing? Angie Rice, co-founder of Boutique Travel Advisors, talks to WBBM's Cisco Cotto. And it's kind of replaced that weekend getaway and vacation. I think part of the reason may be that it's more desirable to travel during the weekdays right now versus weekends to avoid the crowds. So what are people doing? I mean, is it is it driving trips regionally? Is it shorter flights, trains? Are they avoiding that sort of public transportation altogether? What are you seeing? We're definitely seeing air traffic pick up, but there's still that desire to avoid air travel and to limit the amount of time spent in airports. So we're seeing people pursue destinations that allow for a direct flight. And then we still see families and travelers wanting to experience that road trip within four to six hours if you're looking to travel for three to five nights. And as far as the, uh, you know, those shorter trips, is this a family uh, get together? I mean, you're seeing people that are feeling more comfortable with that too? There's that desire to just get out. And I feel like with more of our grandparents and uh, seniors being vaccinated, it's really this opportunity to bring families together. So you're absolutely right. We're seeing more extended families recognizing we've been apart for too long. It's time to connect, whether it's for three or four days in a place where we can all feasibly travel to versus trying to plan, you know, a bigger trip that allows for, you know, more logistics. Are trips safe? I know that's sort of a broad question and and a health question, but what have you been hearing as a travel agent? Should people feel confident whether it's a toe dip trip or one that's maybe more significant? Right. I think that there's still that concern with air travel, but we're finding out, you know, we have a lot of clients that are testing before their travel. And really, I haven't heard of many scenarios just looking at statistics where people are actually catching the virus by traveling. It's more or less prior to their travelers where I've seen, you know, more results. And so 
you know, there's, you know, some people may feel that they're more taking on more risk by traveling, whereas others feel there's more risk just in our own backyards and returning to restaurants and activities where there's more congregating. So, you know, that's a personal decision, but I do think we're finding the places where people want to travel, they're really mindful of opportunities to be more outdoors versus indoors at the resorts as well as experiences if we're going to locations we're looking for activities that are outdoors versus spending time in museums and certainly theaters and things like that are less open so a lot of uh, say state parks national parks that kind of stuff you're right dude ranches state parks people want to be near water they want to be on boats so you know from chicago there's you know a lot of demand for lake geneva and people who want to go further north there's door county i'd also recommend you know for a state park type experience Star Rock is amazing. It actually is very close to my hometown where I was raised. And I was there last year, and it was busy, busy. And that was really, you know, shortly after the world was slowly reopening. So I imagine, you know, those parks are going to continue to be busy. So keep in mind when you're planning your hotel stays to really weigh the options of, do you want to be in a hotel where it's a room, or do you want to pursue something that is more like a cabin that's um, – offers more privacy, um, and maybe there's amenities where there's one pool for a smaller group of people or even a villa that has a private pool. So we're seeing greater demand for those uh, properties that allow for cabin stay and private residence. Thanks so much for all the insight. That is Angie Rice, co-founder of Boutique Travel Advisors, online at TravelBTA.com. Maybe the economic impact of the pandemic isn't as bad as we initially thought, Bankruptcies have lagged behind their total in the year before the pandemic. Bankruptcy court stats show the number of personal and business bankruptcies filed last year in the country fell by nearly 30 percent from 2019, despite COVID-19. The decline was largely driven by a roughly 30 percent fall in personal bankruptcies, but also a nearly 5 percent slide in filings due to business debts. Stimulus money and help for small businesses from the government may have helped, along with temporary bans on eviction. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.